Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things related to D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this and get access to all kinds of exclusive material and a dedicated Discord channel and all kinds of stuff, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish by following the link in the show notes below. The first thing I wanted to talk about was a concept that has been kicking around in my head for a few weeks. I'm pondering it. I actually got to use it in the conclusion of my Rhyme of the Frostmating game. And that's the idea of lightning rods. And what I refer to, I guess I'm creating my own jargon and maybe that's not a great, maybe that's not a great idea, but whatever. It's a sticky, it's a sticky name. To me, when I define a lightning rod, I'm talking specifically about big, powerful boss fights, fights that are really intended to challenge the characters, fights that are really meant to create a a big tension and the the kinds of things you want in the big conclusion, any good story in any good D&D game. And a tricky bit is that characters have certain abilities that can easily circumvent a boss fight. There's a lot of like save or suck spells. There's a lot of sort of powerful combinations of abilities that can that can radically reduce the difficulty of a fight. And there's certain there's certain spells like banish and polymorph and what's it called? Why do I always forget the name of this spell? Hypnotic pattern. There are other spells there are certain spells that can just take out a, you know, one or more creatures really easily, right? Turn Undead, right? Turn Undead can take out a lot of dudes really quickly. And my thought with Lightning Rods is that you don't want to, an easy way to do it is something like Legendary Resistance, where like if you have a Legendary Resistance, you know that you're not going to be able to affect that creature with Banish unless you like burn down all their Legendary Resistances. Stunning Strike, Monk's Stunning Strike, right? So a lot of like saving throw save or suck abilities like that there you can handle them by by just negating them but that's not really a lot of fun for players they have these abilities they like these abilities they want to use these abilities lightning rods are a way of adding in monsters into an encounter that are designed to eat some of those particular abilities they're there so that the players can enjoy using these things and use them in a very effective way that that make them enjoy the use of those abilities, but still keep the game interesting and challenging. And an example is if you have a normal boss fight and you throw in a really big non-legendary monster who has tons of hit points and does tons of damage, but has a low charisma score or a low wisdom score, it's a monster that's designed to be controlled, right? Like, yes, the characters can go over and beat the hell out of it, but it's far more effective for them to cast Banish on it and get rid of it, right? Or cast Polymorph on it or do something. Maybe even cast like Dominate Monster and turn it to their advantage, right? Which would be a whole different sort of circumstance. So you can sort of create types of monsters, either a particular type of single monster or maybe even a group of monsters that are designed to, to take up the slack of those saver, big, big powerful saver suck abilities. Another example is to have groups of groups of monsters. So, you know, a good one is like, if you have a great big group of monsters that are all within like a 20 foot radius of each other that have low hit points, but they're pains in the asses, fireball is great for those, right? Do you want to wipe out those 20 dudes? Throw a fireball on them, right? Or you have sort of lieutenants, you know, a group of lieutenants and you're like, well, I can control these lieutenants with hypnotic pattern. I can get three of the four of them with hypnotic pattern if I throw hypnotic pattern out there, right? Undead, right? I've got lots of undead and I want to control the undead. So if you have hordes of undead coming, hordes of ghouls, hordes of wraiths, 
hordes of whites, you know, that are that are coming in and attacking the group for them to be able to throw out a turn on dead and get rid of three quarters of those guys makes them feel really good, keeps the challenge there and, and works out. So kind of the keys to lightning rods is they, they need to sort of they're, they're built around the characters. Right. So we, we have an idea about by the time we're getting into a big boss fight. We should have a good understanding of what the characters are bringing to the table. What kinds of abilities do they have like this? Because we've probably seen them before and we went, wow, that circumvented that battle really easily. We know that they cast Banish. I know that Bilgum in my group likes to use Hypnotic Pattern and I know that Shadow likes to use Banish. I know that they like these abilities, right? And to be able to put in monsters that are designed for those particular abilities in the same way that like, if you know a Paladin is going to use uh, smites and be able to just pour damage on a guy. Well, then give them somebody that's really big and interesting that they can that they can destroy. But you can kind of think about it like the types of monsters that you would throw in, and they could be sort of like the Bruiser, right? And and the Bruiser is sort of a a very big kind of dumb, maybe slow, maybe low AC, certainly low wisdom, certainly low charisma, but high hit point, high damage monster. Like a fire giant would be a really good bruiser, right? Or reskinning a fire giant would be a really good bruiser. And so that's one kind of monster you can throw in there. You probably don't want to throw a lot of them in there unless you have multiple controllers in your group. You might put two if you have six characters and two of them are big controller-y sort of things. Well, then you might put two of these dudes in there, but generally you're probably going to put one, right? And make them like the sidekick of the boss. Small small groups of effective creatures that are grouped together work well for things like Hypnotic Pattern or Fireball or any kind of group group control situation, right? And so you have might like you might pick four medium-sized creatures that you can sort of throw throw something on. And then there's hordes, and hordes are really good for air, big areas of effect. Fireballs, turn undead, things like that. If they if you've got somebody who uses turn undead, then go ahead and throw a big, you know, throw a big turn undead. Or throw a big pile of of low-level undead, low-level minions. And those, I think that those groups, and then you, of course, you still have your boss, right? And your boss can be a legendary creature. Uh, one tip is don't put multiple legendary creatures into one battle. That's too hard, too many legendary actions to, to handle. It's too much, you're, you're, it just becomes a real hassle. You know, it's the same thing of like running two different types of of minions. If you're going to throw in hordes of bad guys, you don't want to have two different stat blocks for two different hordes in one battle because you're, you're, they're all mixed up and you're going to have a hell of a time figuring it out. Far better to just use one stat block and maybe reskin them. If you if you say like, I have two different horde groups coming in, just call them. Just use the same stat block and make your life easy. Same hit points, same AC, all that kind of stuff. So that definitely works better. But I think that it if you're going to have these groups, if you, if you have these kind of groups of monsters in hand, and then you still have a boss, right? And your boss can still be legendary and still have legendary resistance and the players will know that we don't, that we don't have to handle legendary resistance. Oh, thank you. Then I got my tea. So when you have all of that, when, when you still have a legendary boss on top of that, but the legendary boss, A, you don't have players who are like, well, I, I don't have any spells that are useful against that guy because they do, right? They, they have spells that are useful against everybody else. And then the other one for these boss fights is you can run you can run waves, right? I like to run waves. When I was running my final my final encounter for Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, I had waves of combatants, right? I had 
the main boss and was was not touchable in the beginning and it was hordes of guys in the beginning and they held handled that and then you can overlap the wave so like wave two will come in when wave one is right at the end and that's sort of medium-sized minions and you can control them and or beat them down or do whatever and then you have like the boss and the the bruiser come in at the same time so now it's like we can't just focus on the boss. We still have this bruiser. And if we're not dealing with that bruiser, he's going to crush our guys because he does 96 damage, right? So that is a good way to kind of staircase the the staircase waves of creatures. Another way of doing waves, which I did in, in Eberron, is to have them all on the table at the same time, but they all aren't focused on the characters right now. If you have guys that are busy handling some other event inside of the encounter and they only become active when the players actually sort of interact with them or they they kind of awaken at certain points in the battle, that's another good way. But, but waves of combatants works and then tuning the waves so that they have the kind that they have the vulnerability to the kind of thing that the players love to bring to the table. That's really the key to, to lightning rods and, and something that I, something I like, I'm probably going to do a short video uh, talking about lightning rods. And I'm going to think about this more, probably write an article and do a short video and try to figure things out. One of the things I did this, this past week, since I, I was kind of reminiscing about all of these different campaigns that I've run. And I thought to myself, you know, I have my view. I was ranking Rhyme of the Frost Maiden compared to the other hardcover campaigns that I ran. And I was curious, like, well, I'm enjoying, like, I'm enjoying the game. Like, when I'm running it with my friends, we're having fun, right? There's still, there's parts that definitely stick in my crop, but we're having fun. And it feels like my players are having fun, too. So if I ask them to rank it, I bet you it would rank much higher than it ranked for me. And then I thought, I wonder how it ranks among the other campaigns that I have. And and my I kind of come up came up with a hypothesis. My hypothesis is that, like, Players are generally having a good time, right? It's it's rare. Luckily, I think, it's hopefully rare for somebody to really not like the campaign they're playing in and like how they would rank it. So I said, well, I've had now, and I counted back, and I've had about 20 different players that have played in various campaigns that I've run since I was running 5th edition, all the way back to 2014. So I, I, I put together a poll in Google Docs, and Google, I made a, a Google form, I think that's what it's called, and I sent it out to them and said, I'd like you to rank all of the campaigns that you have played in with me. Not from the point of view of how good you think the story was for the book, but how much you enjoyed the game we played together, right? 12 of my 20 players responded to the poll. I took the results and I put them into a couple of different formats. And I thought it would be interesting to take a look at the results. And I have two kind of ways to look at the results. So I, I average together their scores, right? And this is currently, uh, these are all the campaigns that I've run in the uh, with the average score. So the top campaign was Eberron, my Eberron campaign, which I ran in 2020. And that was a four point average of 4.1. This is out of five, right? A five, a, a perfect five would be everybody thought it was the best thing that's ever happened. And down all the way to a 2.8 for Out of the Abyss, right? And And... I thought that was pretty interesting. So, so it had a greater sway between the best one and the worst one than I expected. I thought they would be closer. I mean, 2.8 is about a three. So really it's about a one point. You know, if you were rounding these, right, it's about a one point difference, about a 20% float between the best campaign and the worst campaign, which I guess kind of fits my hypothesis that that most people, most players are just having a good time and the worst one is not that bad. But like, I, it's funny because I look at Out of the Abyss and I'm like, I actually kind of enjoyed Out of the Abyss when I ran it, right? And I thought that campaign was fun. I thought it had a really fun conclusion, a fun, fun 
events. I really enjoyed the, the Alice in Wonderland approach. I only ended up playing half of it. I only played the first half. So I thought it was interesting. And I do wonder if there's a bit of recency bias going on in here, right? It's possible that players who have played recent ones kind of like those recent ones more. And particularly as they know, because my players are, are, are kind of big into D&D too. So they know how people feel about they know how people feel about the the adventures now, and they look at it as DMs, and they don't like Out of the Abyss because it wasn't the best adventure from a DM perspective. I don't know. That's fine. And so I wonder if that like lowered some certain scores. But I thought I thought that that was interesting. I also then ranked ranked them by player rank, which is essentially just ranking them from one to one to eleven. You know, these are the eleven different campaigns that I ran. I said I ran nineteen campaigns. That's because I had multiple groups running in these. So. Many times I many times I ran the adventure twice for two different groups, and those people could still answer the survey. So I had the players rank the eleven campaigns that that we ran overall, and then I ranked them separate. And then I created this delta to say where was the biggest discrepancy between my ranking of an adventure and the players' ranking. So, and this is the absolute the absolute discrepancy. So, like Rhyme of the Frost Maiden had the biggest discrepancy between my rank and the players' rank. I ranked it at eleven, bottom of the list. My my players ranked at six, just about right in the middle, right? Ghost of Saltmarsh, I ranked at number three. My players ranked at number seven. I thought this was interesting. This is really just because I, you know, how it sorted out. 3.7, right, is equal. So, which is interesting. Like Rhyme of the Frostmaid and Ghost of Saltmarsh ranked equally among the players that I pulled. And I was like, I enjoyed one so much more than the other, right? Like I really, like it was such as that's like a big. You know, that's the big jump between these two. And then a lot of those are like ones and twos. So not not huge jumps. An easier way to look at this is with a, an Edward Tufty style slope graph. So we can look at this slope graph and basic one is at the top and then 11 is at the bottom, right? And we have the player rank on the left and Mike's rank on the other one. And it shows you where those major discrepancies are. A lot of times, like they're grouped pretty well together, right? I, you know, my players ranked Tomb of Annihilation number two. I ranked it number four. That makes sense. Curse of Strahd was three and two. That makes sense. Ghost of Salt Marsh is that, that, that's that big one, right? Big, big difference. I ranked it my third favorite adventure and they ranked it the seventh favorite adventure. That's really interesting. Storm King's Thunder is pretty close. Horde of the Dragon Queen exactly kind of in the middle. Rhyme of the Frostmaiden players threw it in the middle. I put it at the bottom of my list. And that's where the recency bias might come in because we just finished it. Everyone, the players I had, so so the players who responded to the survey are very likely players that I'm playing with now, more so the players I played with five or six years ago. So I, you know, I wonder if there's a bit of like, well, I really enjoyed that final game. They, they're still thinking about the one year later. They're still thinking about their characters. It's still in there. And I wonder if we rank this, and I will probably do this again, like in a year, I might ask again, and then we'll see if it stays where it is. That's really interesting, that rhyme of the frosting. But that's also heartening because what that means is even with an adventure that I really didn't like, players still had a pretty good time. Ghost of Saltmarsh, we talked about. Watery Dragon Heist is, is kind of in the same spot. P Prince of the Apocalypse, pretty close to the same spot. Descent in Avernus, right? Really interesting, right? Right at the, right at the you know, second to bottom. And then Out of the Abyss was the player's ranking. I kind of ranked it third. I still, like, I look at it, though, and I still enjoyed it, right? I, I, still, I still thought that was interesting. So it's very interesting that most of the adventures we were with, and, and like, because it's like, it's a survey, it's a small number of players that answered the survey, all kinds of other stuff you can see where areas where like 3.7 is really close to 3.8 so you know the ranking is really shallow like the, the the range of values is relatively shallow so you don't want to hold too much about like onesie and twosie but i think that the, the two that really caught my interest were rhyme of the frost Maiden and ghost of salt marsh where i ranked 
one of those significantly lower than the other significantly lower than the players did. And then Ghost of Saltmarsh was ranked significantly lower by the players than it was by me. So I thought that was interesting. DM Cromie says, I'm surprised Descent in Avernus, you mentioned your wife ranked it pretty high. No, she did not. No, my wife did not like Descent in Avernus very much. <laughs> she, I, I did say that she and she was emotionally grabbed by a particular scene in that adventure. But the rest of the adventure, both, I didn't like it. And my players were, didn't like it. And we, we stumbled on some things that we had to sit and break out a character and stop and ask ourselves and then change and then go back in so that we were happy to run this thing at all. And that was like the soul coin, the soul coin, the soul coin debacle, right? Really good question. So my, yeah, my players, given the other campaigns that I have run for my, for my friends, I, I, I definitely think they've enjoyed the other ones that have done more than Ghost, the, the Descent and Avernus. So Descent and Avernus is definitely, you know, it's interesting that it was low on the list for both, for both of us. Yeah. No Dragon of Ice Pirate Peak. Well, so only, I only played Dragon of Ice Pirate Peak with one player and I'm not, it wasn't really, I mean, it's kind of a campaign, but it's a small one. So I didn't do, I didn't do Lost Mine of Fandelver. I didn't do, I, I did like campaigns that took a long, like a year, right? These are like year long. These were big year long campaigns. So that, that kind of mattered more. Anyway, I thought that that was, it, that was an interesting and insightful sort of exercise that I did. I really, I really liked, I really liked, liked doing that. And I thought that was interesting. This past week, something happened that made me think a lot about this industry. I think it was on Thursday, you know, kind of nice, relatively relaxing day. And it was pre, you know, the day before Christmas Eve. And I all of a sudden got like multiple, I got multiple PDFs from multiple Kickstarters on the same day. And I started looking through them and I got about six PDFs and every one of them grabbed me. And I was like, look at the production value on these things. Look how good they look, right? They look amazing. And then I was like, this is how much stuff is this? And I counted, I'm like, this is like 1100 pages of material that I just got. 1100 pages of RPG material that I got in one day from two different, I think two or more Kickstarters. I think it might've been three four, I don't even know. Cause like, you know, you get the surveys in and you just answer them. You know, like, I don't even remember if this is part of an existing one or a new one or whatever. All I know is I got to fill this thing out and then I get a product back. And I was like, I was thinking about this because I was like, in the old days, if you talk to old crusty people like myself, we'll remember back in the third edition days when 3E came out and the OGL first came out and lots of publishers tried to publish lots of material for the OGL. And there was a huge glut of material that was also really low quality, right? That the, the, the type of material that was coming out wasn't great, wasn't well-tested, wasn't balanced, the layout wasn't nice, a lot of the stuff wasn't good. And it kind of freaked people people out and you'll, you'll hear people talk about tales, tales talks about like the, the time when the, the OGL almost ruined D and D because like wizards of the coast sort of lost control about what was getting published for D and D. And, but it was a different time. The internet wasn't really around very much. You, you know, there wasn't online products. It was almost all physical products. And it was really like, yeah, it was a weird time. And I was like, the difference now is that there is still a huge glut of material, a huge amount of material coming out for fifth edition and has, but the quality of it is really, really good. You know, and these, and these six things that I got where I'm opening up, I'm like, every one of these is like, wow, look at the quality of this. So I thought I'd like poke at some of these. So th I think three of the products came from, 
Ghostfire Games. It was Dungeons of Drakenheim, which is a campaign uh, that was published by Ghostfire Games, forged with Ghostfire Games. You kind of run on its own. Uh, a great big 260-page campaign, right? Uh, like a like a campaign book. And like, look at the art, right? The art is crazy good. The design is really, really nice. This is as good as anything I see from Wizards of the Coast from a design perspective, right? It looks really nice, you know, content warnings, great, you know, good stuff. And I, this isn't a spotlight because I haven't even really read it. And that's part of the problem. This is 1,100, 1100 pages of material in, in one day, right? But it looks outstanding, right? Really looks like good stuff. And I remember I backed the Kickstarter. I'm like, oh, I'm excited for this. Yeah, here's an adventure flowchart. They clearly know what they're, they clearly know what they're doing here, right? Outstanding stuff. So I really, I really dig this. You know, I, I really, look at it. it's just wonderful art, right? So that's outstanding. Then I got two other products from Ghostfire Games, which was the Grim Hollow Monster Grimoire, a 432 page book of monsters. Again, look at the art on this, right? There's a four-armed skeleton, right? And a hellhound. They, they, they're talking, they're having a conversation with each other, right? Big maps. This is all part of Ghostfire's, what is it called? The Grim Hollow campaign setting. So it's all, as you imagine, lots of grim, grim monsters, right? Lots of powerful monsters. Now, what grabs me is who wrote it, right? So Sean Merwin was the lead designer. Rules of Elma's Sean Merwin. I know that, what's his name? Damn it. Chris Sims. Chris Sims also did uh, a lot of development of this. I think I talked to the, I talked to Sean about the fact that Chris Sims wasn't credited in here, so they're probably going to fix that and update it. But there is, I mean, it's a 400-page monster book, right? They did a bunch of play testing. They did a bunch of work, and oh, that's grim. What is that? That's grim hollow, right? Aberrant horrors. Again, really high production value. I, you know, and and I think about it, and it's like Chris Sims was involved in the design of 5th edition when it was coming out. Sean Merwin wrote a ton of stuff for 3rd and 4th edition for D&D. These are people who worked at Wizards of the Coast, either as freelancers or as employees or as both. So it's like, you know, you're getting the same quality of the designers uh, behind this at, that you would get from Wizards product. Yeah, this is all 5th edition. Yeah, this is all 5th edition stuff. Uh, tentacles. Lots of stuff with tentacles. Angels, right? And really, really cool stuff, like really, you know, really neat. So this is just a huge, huge book of, of monsters, 400 page book of monsters that are out. And again, so one thing about all the books that I'm showing today is like, other than I froze my browser, the, other than unfreeze. Oh my God. Oh, that was a mistake. What if I go to a browser window? Okay. But I can't scroll. Other than, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh yeah, look, it came back. So I haven't looked at the design. I'm just looking at the production quality, but the, the production quality is really, really good. Outstanding stuff. Beautiful maps. You know, so this is a book of adventure, like layers. Again, Sean Merwin was the lead designer in this. Greg Marks, another guy who's worked a long time on Wizards of the Coast stuff, right? And think about that. Like Sean Merwin, Greg Marks, and James Hake all work at Ghostfire Games, Right. That's powerful. Uh, Sean was telling me about, about, like, they hired, like, they hired a ton of people, full-time people at Ghostfire Games, right? This is a powerful publishing house here, and they're making a lot of stuff, a lot of really, really good stuff. So, you know, this is really, like, I, again, I just look at it, and it's like, it's amazing stuff. These are, like, your cool layers, cool maps. Also came with all VTT maps, as you imagine it does. Really, really outstanding stuff. 
so those are like the three sort of Grim Hollow, right? Dungeons of Drakenheim, the Grim Hollow monsters. Oh, look, I got it. I finally got to Master Plague Doctor. That's cool, right? And then this uh, Book of Layers all looked really good. And that was one big set of PDFs that I got, right? And then the other were these remarkable, the, the, these three remarkable books that I got from Loresmith, right? And Loresmith, again, you know, some of the names that I see on here I recognize. And I don't even, I, re I remember backing it. And I'm like, oh, that looks cool. So I got Remarkable Inns, Remarkable Shops, and Remarkable Cults. Guess which one I was most interested in? Cults. So... Again, beautiful, you know, beautiful artwork. You know, and JVC Perry, I certainly, Alex Clippinger and JVC Perry are two, are two designers that I, that I know. And again, really, really cool stuff. You know, really great, just a lot of stuff. And this is the kind of material I think you can sort of more safely use because it's not heavy balance stuff. Monster books too, like monster books, you can generally look at them and decide for yourself, do you think that's going to be okay and then run it? Player facing stuff that you always have to be a little bit more careful about because like that gets in there and it never gets out again. But like dropping in lore, easy. Dropping in, you know, even magic items to a point, again, you can sort of look at them, Thunder Mall, right? Really cool stuff, right? Really the bizarre of Marcoon, right? Really neat prices, security, influence. Outstanding stuff. So I really like this. Um, I really like what I'm seeing from this. Remarkable Cults. You know, so there's actually another one because there's a Secret Cults and Societies book that the Cobalt Press put out. And so now there's a couple of books dedicated to just cults. And who doesn't like and who doesn't like cults? Probably other people, but you're wrong because cults are awesome. And, you know, again, like all these things, the Dreamweavers, you know. Oh, look at them. Really cool, right? Wealth, resources, defense, and influence, services. You know, very cool, very cool stuff. And it looks like relatively mechanically light, which normally when I was, when I was younger, when stuff didn't have mechanics, I felt like I got ripped off. And now I prefer the stuff that doesn't have mechanics because I think I can always add mechanics. But what I want is lore, right? I want deep temple of temple of the new flesh. That's cool. Crafting people crafting themselves. So all this stuff you know, is great. And, and my point is like, not to, not to kind of spotlight all of this stuff, although it all looks really good. And I, I'd recommend, I recommend taking a look. I'll put, I'll put links to all of these things in the show notes and all this stuff isn't necessarily available yet. Cause it's all, I just got it from the Kickstarter. So I think it takes a little bit of time before it's available for general release, but I'll put links in anyway. Hopefully you can find them. There's a, there's a construct bard. That's cool. And what I'm, what I'm really interested in is just the amount, like I, I think I'm going to do a one year, what are like the top third party things that I have, that I grabbed over the past year and do something about it. Cause there's such amazing stuff. And just looking at 2020 to 2021, like the, looking at all the stuff in 2021 and saying, what are all the cool things that I've picked up during this year that I got from Kickstarters that I've bought myself, you know, and, and kind of highlighting the ones, you know, just a quick, like one sentence summary of each one, I think would probably be something that people in the chat are saying, yes, please do that. So I think that's something I want to do because there's a lot of it. And then, but it's hard. Like I got six in one day, right? It's a lot of stuff. So yeah, I bought, I bought a lot of things. So I just, I'm just fascinated by that stuff. I'm fascinated by the quality of the material that we're getting from a lot of different publishers. And I would say that it looks like both those publishers, Lord Smith and Ghostfire Games are two that you definitely want to, want to keep an eye on. We are getting to the end of the month and we still have a lot of patron questions. So we're going to see how many patron questions we get through today and then... I may do a dedicated show, 
maybe next week in which I go through all of the remaining questions that exist on the Patreon question thing. So the way this works is patrons of Sly Flourish, every, every month at the beginning of the month, I put up a post on the Sly Flourish Patreon page asking for any questions that people would like to talk about as it relates to D&D. And I'll either answer the question directly on Patreon, I might do a short video about it, or I might talk about it during this show. Most of the time I end up talking about it during this show. And so I put together the big list, I stick it in a notion notebook, and we read them, and we've been carving through them for the path for the past few weeks. And then at the end of the month, I'll do a final show where I cover all of them. We'll, we'll go through every question that we've got that we've got left. So James W says, I have been reading through your books that came with the PDF collection pledge of the Lazy DMs Companion. Awesome. Thank you for backing Lazy DMs Companion. I was wondering if there's any advice in your books you no longer quite stand by or follow. This is a really good, really good question. And it's something that I often look at and ask myself. I try to take a hard look at the stuff that I'm doing. And I, I try not to be afraid to look back and say, yeah, that was wrong, right? Or that was a mistake or there's a better way. And... You know, because that's just the way it is. And it's unfortunate, like when you're writing a book and like that book physically exists, right? And, and you can't just go change every book that everybody already bought. That becomes an issue. So the answer is, if you go back far enough, absolutely. And the la the original Lazy Dungeon Master, for example, definitely has things where I don't think it's wrong. And I think it's still, people still like it and they still buy it and I still sell it. And I haven't gone back and rewritten it because I did the return of the lazy, lazy DM. But I think that they, there's definitely things in there. Like I think they were oversold. I think it was overly simplistic. I think that it missed some things that are really valuable. And that's why I wrote return of the lazy dungeon master. And I was, I wasn't sure that that was going to work. Like I, re I remember I was kind of thinking about what the possible outcomes were going to be for return. And it was like, well, one outcome could be that it is equally valued as the lazy, the original lazy dungeon master. Outcome number two is it's more popular than return than, than lazy dungeon master. But outcome number three is it actually kills both of them that people get confused about which ones, which they don't like either of them. And now they just sort of abandon that idea. And that was something I was worried about. Luckily, it turned out that Return was way more popular than the original, and that worked great. And so, yeah, so there's definitely stuff in the original Dun Lazy Dungeon Master that I don't really stand by or follow, but I still like it, and I, I don't think it's not useful. I, I think it is still useful. But then the question is, what about Return? And and the eight steps, I mean, you, many people have watched me go through the eight steps to prep my own games every week. I, I, I eat my own dog food, right? I am I am using my own book to... To, to prep for my own games. And I do this, right? So I know that it can work for me. I have heard from many other people that it works for them. I haven't had to add new steps and nor have I had steps that I just omit because I don't need them ever, right? I still use all eight steps. I still only use the eight steps. And I think that that, that, that works well. There are, there's probably one thing that's kind of in the back of my mind that I ponder and I, you know, question. And that's the idea of hooks. Like a good adventure needs good hooks. It needs a way to draw the characters into the story of the adventure and get them to do stuff. And there isn't a direct place in the eight steps for hooks. You can fit them into lots of different places. You can fit hooks into the strong start. You can fit hooks into secrets and clues. You can fit hooks into the scenes. So there's lots of places you can add them. And I don't think it's a ninth step. 
I don't like the idea of adding a ninth step for one. And that one, I'm probably a little biased. I'm like, I want to keep it eight. I've been talking about eight forever. I don't want a ninth. And I also don't think you necessarily need a ninth step for it, right? I think that I think that you can fit it into the other stuff, like the strong start. Your strong start should include the hook that draws them into the rest of the adventure. So if it's this one-shot adventure, that's a good place for it. So that that's one thing about the you know hooks. Then the Lazy DM workbook has a couple of things that I think are now, I, I now have a better way to do them. And the better way to do them is in the Lazy DM's companion. They still work. They're, they're, not, they're not completely wrong. I don't, I'll stand by them. There's probably only one thing that I don't stand by in the workbook, and it's a relatively small thing. But like I have a different way of doing encounter balance now. I have two different ways of doing encounter balance inside the Lazy DM workbook, and now I'm offering a third, and I like the third better than those first two. The first two work though, they work pretty well. So again, it didn't, it didn't make the old stuff obsolete. It instead made, offered new approaches. And if you look at the Lazy DM's companion, obviously that book has all of the current thoughts and advice that I've got for running RPGs, right? Like it's, it's all in there. And I don't think there's, <laughs> if, if there was anything in there I didn't like, now's the time to fix it because it's still, it's still in, you know, we, we haven't published it yet. But really I've looked at it a lot. I've read about it a lot. I don't, there's nothing more I think I need to add to it. And there's nothing in there that I don't think I agree with. So the one thing in the Lazy DM workbook that I probably no longer stand behind is how to pool hit points for, for like, I told you this is going to be a small thing. How to pool hit points for, hordes of bad guys in the lazy dm workbook i say that you should basically add all of the hit points of all of the monsters together in a one hit point pool and then subtract the amount of damage from that i no longer think that that's a good approach in fact i don't i've tried using that and it doesn't really work but what does work is knowing how many hit points any individual monster has in that horde and then tracking the amount of damage that the horde overall is taking and every time it takes a hit a monsters worth of hit points and damage just remove a monster and that way you don't you're not tracking 780 hit points you're just tracking the 15 hit points that any individual skeleton has so again that is addressed in the lazy dm's companion the lazy dm's companion has a in my opinion a better way to do hordes there wasn't a <clears throat> because the other book is already published i didn't go back and, and we'd have to like relay it out and do all kinds of stuff so i didn't go back and fix the workbook and frankly that that other style can work it's just more difficult than, than this style so that's probably the only thing that i look at and and disagree with i do try to take a hard look at the stuff that i'm making and i will not i will do everything i can not to be afraid to change my point of view and change my mind when i see that there are better ways to do things that's something i i, I feel strongly david m says how do you navigate dungeon delving as a dm when the players struggle with the exploration pillar my players are in an abandoned temple i use the dyson map and plotted a few general areas and clues and secrets along the way i established that some ghouls were looking for something so they knew there was a MacGuffin in there the players were kind of dumbfounded and i felt like i had to handhold them the whole way ultimately they just tried something and i completely rearranged the dungeon on the flight to keep the session dragging so that can happen and this this hits a few a few different thoughts that i have about this which one of them is the complexity of your adventure is, is more, far more complex for you than it's going to be for your players. This is sort of like there's this, there's this study where you would read a song and you would tap with your finger the beat to the song and then estimate how likely it is that somebody would be able to know what song you were tapping out. And almost always, you were far more confident that people were going to know what song you were tapping out than they actually were. They don't know what the hell you're doing, right? And this, that same idea works here, where like you, you imagine like they've got to know that the ghouls are after a MacGuffin. You know, they've got to know 
that the ghouls are going after MacGuffin. Well, no, they don't. They might not have any idea what's going on, right? You're tapping out that song and they're not listening, right? They're not hearing the song. So this gets to a philosophy. I'm stealing this from E.B. White. E.B. White in uh, one of the earliest versions of Elements of Style said readers are readers are in trouble about half the time, right? And I think that same that same philosophy works in D&D. The players aren't understanding about half of what you're throwing out, on, you know, you're 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 throwing out a lot of info to them they're getting maybe half of it right i know i'm just making up a number but it's it's easy to go with the point is that like a lot of stuff you're describing they're not hanging on to they're not gonna they're not getting it they're not going to get it and so you have to keep that in mind another anecdote i heard was that when valve was doing the game portal 2 i think this is true i read this somewhere must be true when valve was doing portal 2 during their testing, they would re- regularly stop their playtesters and ask them what the story was in the game. Like, what's happening at this point in the story? And the players would describe what's happening. And they realized that, like, the complexity of the story that they were trying to put out there just wasn't being picked up. So they would pare down the story to make sure that players who were playing the game could understand what was happening, right? And it meant simplifying the story overall. And I think that that is a valuable thing we can do here too, that remembering that the complexity of our story is probably not going to be picked up and we're going to have to simplify it down, right? And then the third way is, so what do you do about this? And one is that you got to recall that the characters know more than the players do about what's happening in the world, right? The players are only playing like a few hours a week. The characters are living there their whole lives, right? The players aren't really risking anything other than a good time. The characters are risking their lives, right? So they recognizing that the characters know more than the players do mean that it's okay for you to lead them a little bit and say like your character knows X because of Y, right? Your character can, you know, looking at it and you can look at like what skills they're trained in and say, because you're trained in investigation, your investigative eye is picking up the fact that these ghouls aren't just running around trying to eat each other or trying to eat people. They're seeking something out. There's something here that they're going for, right? And then, you know, it's it's okay. And, it's, and it, it works, I think, when you bring it from the second person point of view, when you describe it as something their character understands or their character knows, they feel like they did it, right? It feels better than if you just spew lore. It's far more interesting to take what's in the world and describe it from the point of view of their character. This is that character-centric view, right? then they feel like they've accomplished something, right? And it's part of that accomplishment is, oh, I'm glad I trained an investigation because that meant I learned this thing, right? So I think that that's, I think that's an approach. I think that's kind of different than the old school ideals where you test the player, not the character, right? And that's different these days. It can be. And, and one of the ways is, no, we can go ahead and test the characters. That's what skills are for, right? They didn't have skills in the old days and now they do. So I think that those, I hope that helps. So generally I, the idea is like, don't, don't, you know, don't bag on your players for not picking things up because it's hard. It's hard being on the other side. Right. And I remember like I was playing in my friend's game and we were getting a quest and he described it all. And I said, okay, let me just make sure I'm clear. So we need to go to this place. He's like, yes. And we're going to talk to this guy. And he said, yes. And we're doing it for this reason. He said, yes. And to this end, he's like, yes. I'm like, okay, good. I've got this. And I like wrote it down and sent it to everybody. Right. And it's like, sometimes we really have to like world of Warcraft quest log, this kind of stuff to make it as easy as possible. Think about World of Warcraft, right? Where it like draws lines. It's like, yeah, your quest guy's right over there. You know, you want to do it. It's right over there, right? Like they lead people because sometimes it's hard and we got lives. 
we're very busy. We're busy people. We're not dumb. We're just busy, right? So I hope that answers, David, I hope that answered your question. Marcel G, from one of your videos, I learned about Notion. It became my primary place for session prep and organization. I run a game in a homebrew setting. Because of that, I need to organize nations, pantheons, and more. My impression is that Notion would be cumbersome to use in this context. Currently, I still use OneNote for that. So my question is, how do you keep track of all your world building stuff? How do you organize it? And if so, which tool do you use? So good, good question. I would, and I'm going to make some, I'm going to make some, some statements. I'm going to say some things. So one of them is I have a hard time feeling. So first of all, I don't, I don't promote any one tool over another. I share what I have learned in my own use. And I like the things that I, that I use. But if you are happy with the tools that you're using, you should not switch just because I'm, I like one, right? Or you, you know, use what you dig, use the tools that you like, and there's lots of different ones. And so there's, there's kind of four tools that jump to mind for this sort of thing. And there's probably, I'm certain there's more, but there's four that I think about a fair amount. OneNote, Notion, Obsidian, and World Anvil, right? And Obsidian is the markdown, uh, the, the Obsidian is the markdown tool. There's another Obsidian, there's like Obsidian Portal, and I'm not, I'm not talking about Obsidian Portal. I mean, Obsidian, the application, that's a note-taking app. And Obsidian, Notion, and OneNote are all very similar to one another with slightly different features on different sides. They are all essentially like personal wikis where you can write your notes and interlink your notes. You can put all kinds of things in there like images and text and whatever. They have formatting in them. Both Obsidian and Notion use Markdown and OneNote uses whatever the hell Microsoft wants to use. And they all act in a very similar way. They all have different features. Notion has databases and stuff like that. Obsidian has lots of plugins. OneNote is Microsoft and has local clients everywhere. So they all have sort of different things that they do. But basically, I'm pretty sure you could organize your prep stuff in any of those three and, and get it to work and get it to work just fine. And World Anvil is the only different one because it's actually built as a world building application, which means it has a smaller user base and probably a smaller development budget. So it's a little, a little sharper around the edges than, than I think the, the, these bigger tools that support lots of things have. But it also has more dedicated stuff that you can do for world building. An example of the, like the one thing that I really wish Notion had that it doesn't is the ability to annotate images and link to annotated images inside the thing. Like imagine you have a, a map and on that map you have nations and you want to be able to link to those nations and click on a map and be able to go to a page. I, I would love that, right? And and they don't have that. And I don't think they're going to they're probably I don't think they're gonna they're gonna you know have that for, for any amount of time. So so I would argue that if you can do it in OneNote, you can likely do it in Notion. And if you can do it in OneNote or Notion, you can likely do it in Obsidian, right? I imagine all three of those, it's hard to find something than one that doesn't exist in the other ones, generally speaking, for, for world building. For, for nation and pantheons and world building in Notion, what I would do is uh, I would create, and, and we'll, we'll go to an example here. We'll go to my Frostmaiden one. So in my campaign notebook in Notion, I have this uh, campaign database, right? And the campaign database has essentially pages where I can put anything in here, right? Here, here I created like an outside horror page, tagged monster with a stat block that I snapshot from Toma Beast 2, right? But I could also have like a character, Father Lymek, the caller of Thrun, right? Herald of Thrun. It's linked to another page. He's both a villain and an NPC. I've got possible stat block links and then I've got like, you know, things that I can use for, for him. So... I can create a new page and I can say, you know, the nation 
of Arl Dusk. I think Arl Dusk is something. And I can create a new tag and call it Nation, right? And now I've got a new page tagged Nation, and I can create another index page that has all of the nations in it, right? And I can add any text here. I can do any images here. So I can do something for as, as big as the nation of Arl Dusk, an entire nation. I could do a whole pantheon right in here and then have a list of all of the individual gods. And I could have a pantheon tag. I could have a god tag, right? If I wanted to separate those things out by category. The tag field here that I use in the, in the database can expand as far as I want it to. So I, it could be everything from a mundane item, right? All the way to a pantheon of gods. And I can, as long as I tag it with whatever tag makes sense, I can sort by that. I can filter by that. I can search by that. I can build pages. I can build views that only show that. And it lets me organize all that stuff however I want. So it, it is both it is both horizontally and vertically flexible, right? I can create as many pages as I want for anything. And the scaling is, you know, as big as I've ever needed it to be. And I can go vertically, by looking at that vertically, vertically in number of pages, horizontally in the tags. And I can have any number of tags, which means I can now sort by this. I can put multiple tags. So I can have a God and Pantheon tag. Do I want them to show up both in gods and in Pantheons? I can do that. Is a God also an NPC? I can do that. Is a God a villain in an NPC? I can do all three, right? In my villains, they show up. In my gods, they show up. And in my NPCs, they show up. So by having this very flexible set of tags, I can really create just about anything I, anything I want. So... And looking back at your question, my argument is if you can do it in OneNote, you can do it in Notion. I'm not, and like, if, you're, if your answer is like, Mike really likes Notion and I'm curious about it, but I really like OneNote, stay with OneNote, right? If you're happy with what you're doing, you know, I don't, I don't know that there are so many advantages to Notion that it's worth you moving an entire thing over to, to, from, from OneNote. Some people do, right? But I've actually tried the other way. I was like, can I do the same kind of thing I'm doing in Notion in OneNote? And the answer is yes, I, I, I have done it. And so, so it works pretty well. So Marcel, I hope, that answers, I hope that answers your question. Aiden B says, we have been discussing the one-pager handouts for starting new campaign, which is a really cool concept. My question is, in short style, how would you handle a handout for a campaign that have additional player options and additional background information for players to create a functioning character in a campaign with specific styles and themes? So you can stick to one page if you can if you can get the campaign summary to one page and re, and and understand that the players are going to focus first on that one page. What I'm really talking about with the one page limit is you don't want ten pages of lore. You don't want people to have to read ten pages to understand what's going on in your world. Summarize it again. We're busy people. Everybody's busy, and and players are not as uh, the they are not able to put as much attention to the game as we are. Right? We can't expect them to. So trying not to overwhelm them with story lore. And if you needed to, so, you know, I, I try to keep things simple, right? And so I, I offer information about player options and stuff like that in my one pagers. I actually have a, let's see if I can pull it up. Here is my draft of my Wild Beyond the Witchlight one pager, right? And I managed to fit in character stuff in a quarter of a page, 
right? And and I kept my my thing down like you begin at first level. You can choose options from player's handbook, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, and Tasha's Cauldron. Peace and Twilight Cleric subclasses are not allowed. In addition to the races in the player's handbook, you can choose the Herringon, Fairy, or Satyr races. You can use the customizing origin feature from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything to re- redistribute ability bonuses. I should also mention in here that you can also use the optional class features in, in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Those are also allowed. In addition to the background sources from above, you may choose the Fey Lost or Witchlight hand backgrounds from uh, while beyond the Witchlight and the motivation. You travel with your companions to seek that which you have lost so many years ago in the Witchlight Carnival and restore joy to the wonder, joy and wonder to the Feywild, right? That's my that's my angle. This will be available. I'm gonna don't don't worry if you're like oh, I want that right now. I'll make it available when when I've got it. You know where I like it. So I managed to fit what I believe to be a fair amount of character building stuff in this. Now I also run pretty close to the default. If you have lots of different you know, addition like additional player options where you're you're actually like here is the actual player option. Of course you're gonna have to add that separately, right? But if you can list them at least, then you can still kind of make it, you know, think, think about the design of this handout that you're creating, recognizing that players are not going to be able to read the whole thing, right? They're, they're only going to be able to grab onto what they can grab onto. And so if you're saying like, if you were interested in optional backgrounds, there's a background page and it has backgrounds on there. Okay. Right. You can add that as a separate page. Um, but how would I handle a handout for a campaign that have additional player options? I would list them. And additional background information. I would list those two. And if I have to include that, I would include them as separate pages. I hope that I hope that makes sense. Aiden B, thank you very much for the question. Luciano N says, when all of us are seated or uh, seated and about to begin the session, I ask some personal questions regarding the characters. My intent is to, to make them think as the characters and give them to life. Then I do a strong start. Do you have any ritual session for beginning? Yes, my ritual, that's a good one, by the way, that asking the questions about the characters and how they feel. I think that's really powerful. I like the campfire talk idea, which is like when they're doing a rest, you can, you can ask them like while you guys are resting and eating and, and binding your wounds, how do you feel? about your current situation what does this remind you of from your character's past what are you worried about in the future and then kind of go around and have each of them talk about it i like that it's like a darkest dungeon style where during the rest each of the characters kind of have a little saying that they they make like what's a sentence that kind of describes how you feel uh doing that at the start i think is a fine way to go too so my own ritual though is to say who would like to describe what happened in last session's game and i'll be honest it ain't working that great particularly online Somebody will usually jump in, but I usually get a pregnant pause right at the beginning where everybody's like not saying anything. And I'm, I might just start taking it over again. I know this is something I promote and I do talk about like who would like to describe it. Sometimes you have players who are note takers and they will describe it. I actually, as a player, I like describing it, but a lot of times people are just like, I don't really remember. It's been a week and I just sat down, right? So sometimes as a DM, it's better to say in our last session, the following things happened. I think it's okay to do that. And you can ask like, you know, players want to jump in and say, oh yeah, and we also did this other thing. Then you should offer that option. So I might start doing that more because I think it it is kind of like, starting by by throwing a dead fish on the table when you say who wants to describe what happened and nobody says anything so i might change my ritual a little bit but generally my ritual is who would like to describe what happened in last session's game it's a good way for me to get the game it's good for the characters to kind of get into it and then you have a strong start that's my that's my ritual i I like your idea though of asking them some questions about the characters that could be a real great way to go especially maybe you could do both maybe this is an idea that if you say like you remember that certain characters did certain things and you could say like in the last session's game yepa received a wand from the elder tree 
How do you, you know, what does this wand feel like in your hands when you hold it? And what are you thinking about when you hold it? That's a way of like reminding them of something that happened and then also bringing them in the character. I kind of like, I kind of like that idea. Bram B says, I have a short campaign that I'm running online for about 18 sessions now. One of my players will go into the military service in February and then, and from then on, she won't be able to play with us. I would like to finish up the campaign before then, but I only have five to six sessions to do so. I do have a clear ending in mind. Should I try to rush through it? What would be the best way to do so? We rush through it sounds negative, but that's probably not a bad approach. If you know you're going to have an end of the campaign, put the ending in mind. Know where it's headed. It's five to six sessions is enough that you can steer things that way. And, you know, you can still offer interesting choices along the way. Try to think about what choices you can offer during the ending or at the ending that really matter. Like who's going to who's going to do what, you know, and. But I, but I think that that's the point of the campaign. And I think this happens in any campaign you're running. It certainly happens in all the campaigns I'm running. They are all heading to one spot, right? Both of my Frostmating games are, they, they handle things in very different ways, but the final two sessions are gonna be almost exactly the same layout. They're gonna have different choices. There's gonna have different character stuff. And that one year later montage is gonna be very different for both groups, right? And both groups had different views of things. So I think that you can, but you, I still know where they're going. Right. I still know I still know what the plan is. So you narrow narrow down. Think about it like you're running the adventure, right? And think about it like you were doing a one shot and keeping your mind on what that final situation is going to be like. Give yourself plenty of time in the final session to have interesting character stuff and a big boss fight if you're doing boss fights. Give yourself some time, right? Don't try to rush it. I, it was it was hard for me to fit everything in in my last session of Frostmaiden. So I'm hoping that won't be quite so bad. So I hope, Brandon, I hope that helps. Uh, DM Timothy says, is it possible to change the Sword Coast map to look like a point crawl map on the map itself? What techniques could be used on an already established map in any game world to transfer it to a point crawl map instead without making an entirely new map? Good, good question. And it's, I think it's pretty easy to do. And that would be by dr drawing the connections that exist between. So a point crawl map, if we're going to get nerdy about it, is a graph, right? And the graph, a graph has nodes and edges. Nodes are points. Edges are the things that connect the points together, right? That's really all it is. In our point crawl, we have locations and the connections between those locations, the paths. I like to think of it as locations and paths, right? A location is Baldur's Gate. A path is the high road, right? I'm looking at my map on the wall here, right? The, the location is Scornoble or, or Elturel. And the path is the Sharandar River. I can't read it because the lights are in my eyes, right? So what you could do is you could take a, a printout and print a copy of the Sword Coast map, maybe a black and white printout of the Sword Coast map and take a Sharpie and draw the lines that are connecting the locations that are on the map. And maybe you're adding some new locations of your own, right? That's cool. And then you could draw the paths that connect those locations. Maybe you do dotted lines to show the secret ones that the characters might not be aware of unless they actually go to that point and find out or learn about a secret path that exists between connections. So overland maps are kind of already point crawls right? They already have them there. It's really about, you know, Waterdeep, you know, so you have Dragonspear, right? Dragonspear Castle, and you have Waterdeep, and you have the Tradeway, right? And the Tradeway kind of connects those two together. That is a, that's a route. And then when you're running it, you might have things along the way, monuments that they might discover. I like to think about like what makes that path interesting? What could happen on that path that's interesting? And what sort of monument might be 
found along the way? Is there an old destroyed statue of the god Amonator, right? That hasn't been thought about in a hundred years, but it sits there and it's kind of a landmark and usually people kind of gather there along the, along the way. So yeah, I think it is pretty easy to take a geographical map like the Sword Coast, take a Sharpie, draw the lines between the nodes and build, a, build your own point crawl map. And then the, why would you do that? You do that so that when the players are playing and they say we're at Baldur's Gate and you can say like, okay, you can actually travel to Waterdeep a couple different ways. You can take the long road and head on up to Dragonspear. It's, yeah, it says Dragonspear on there, but what's the city? Oh, Daggerford, right? Isn't Daggerford? Where's Daggerford? I can't remember where Daggerford is. You know, you can go through and it'll take longer or you can try to travel through or maybe you want to stay off the road because you're going to get attacked by cult, cult of the dragon along the road. So maybe you have to go through the mirror of dead men, right? And the mirror of dead men, right? Is that another, another map on there? You know, or the troll moors, right? You have to travel through. Maybe there's paths you have to take. You can't go on the main path. You have to go on these other paths or because there's some... There's an old ruined castle in the middle of the troll moors, and there's a powerful magic item that can help you on your way if you're willing to go there. And and the, the path you would take is this path through the troll moors, right? So geographic maps already make good point crawl maps. I think it's pretty easy to take a geographic map and turn it into a point crawl map, and I would do so by uh, drawing those drawing those lines. So. Timothy, thank you for that question. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning during the D&D talk show. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. For those of you on YouTube, thank you for watching. For those of you on the podcast, thank you for thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter to get new written tips in your inbox every week. You can help, you can subscribe to the videos on YouTube and learn about any new video that I put out. I'm putting out about two to three videos a week, three, three, three-ish videos a week. You can support me directly on Patreon, which lets you join in on the Patreon monthly Q&A thread. It also gives you access to a dedicated Discord channel. It gives you access to a bunch of exclusive adventures, access to a bunch of exclusive material, lots of cool things that are available to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Uh, or for, as always, you can pick up any of my books. Uh, Lazy DM's Companion should be available within the next month or so. Thank you very much for listening to the show today. Take care, have a great week, and get out there and play some D&D.